All right, we're in the New Testament book of Acts. So if you look in your Bible and you look at the first page of the book of Acts, well, you'll probably see something similar to this. It says, the Acts of the Apostles. And it says that because it's recounting the actions of the early days of Jesus' church. It's recounting the actions of, actions of those who are considered Jesus' apostles, his disciples, those who are following him, the 12. But if you actually think about this book, if you actually read the book, what we find is that it is the acts of the apostles, but empowered by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? So, so we can say it's the acts of the apostles, but it's actually the acts of Jesus or the Holy Spirit. That's where it's all deriving from, ultimately, now, as we've noted the first, these first couple weeks of this book, Acts is the follow-up to the Gospel of Luke, right? And Robert did this last week, and I did this in week one, an encouragement to read the book or the Gospel of Luke because it can help us as we think about and understand the book of Acts as well. So Acts was written by Luke who we noted in the first week is a physician who approaches his writing with meticulous research. He's analytical. He's approaching it kind of from a scientific perspective. So one emphasis we've encountered early in this book is the call for Jesus followers to wait. To wait for the promise of the Father. So following Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he appeared to his followers many times, but he eventually left the earth. Last week, Robert talked about the ascension, right? So this is when Jesus leaves the earth. And then this coincided with a promise to send the Holy Spirit to his church so that we might be able to make much of Jesus in the whole of our lives. Now, this idea was explicit last week in verse 8. This is, and Robert mentioned, this is kind of a cornerstone verse of Acts. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so it says Christians will receive power, okay? But then it's explicitly connected to the Holy Spirit coming upon people, right? So there's that connection, but then the power is given so that people will be witnesses in the world, witnesses of Jesus. The verse goes on and it talks about my witnesses, right? So people are endowed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to people so that they might be given power to then speak about Jesus. So we might want to take this and say, I want power to do all kinds of things, right? But we just need to see this explicit connection that power is given so that we might tell others about Jesus. I also loved uh, last week how Robert mentioned that we are the end of the earth. I don't know if you guys have read this in such a way like I have in my life, but I, I've tended to read this thinking the United States is the center of Christianity. Like, we're the center of the world, because in many ways, like economically or politically, in many ways, the U.S. has become kind of the center in certain ways. At least we think it is, right? But it's a reminder of such grace that the U.S. is not Jerusalem, right? 
There's tons of grace in that for us. We are the ends of the earth. People have traveled great distances to us. They have sacrificed in significant ways so that we would know Jesus. People have endured tons of suffering to get here so that we would know who Jesus is and we might be able to put faith in him. We can tend to overestimate our importance sometimes, a lot of times. And it's good to remember where we actually are, where we're from. We are the ends of the earth. Okay, so we find ourselves, after Jesus ascended, still in this spot of waiting, right? Like, there was this angel who looked at Jesus' disciples last week and basically asked, why are you looking into heaven, right? Poses that question to him, and then Robert talked about the implied idea is go, right? But what we're going to find today is that it's kind of a go and wait. Go and wait. Because they're still waiting for God's promise. They're still waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So let me read our verses this morning. We're going to be in Acts 1, verses 12 through 26. So you can follow along on the screen behind me. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord, one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken, taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. God, thank you for... This section of the Bible, thank you for the ways in which it can encourage us, and I pray it would do that this morning. Would you help us to see the gospel, to see your faithfulness, to see your power displayed in these verses? Would you build our faith in Jesus as we look at these verses? And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so 
after these individuals uh, or witnessed Jesus' ascension, they returned to Jerusalem, it says, and what's obvious here is that they are still waiting, right? The Holy Spirit hasn't come. They're still waiting for that promise from God. Now, there's a lot of interesting, maybe confusing, maybe gross aspects in these verses that we, we can delve into and seek some understanding. So, uh, but before we get into some of that, first of all, I just want to comment here. We read that the 11 disciples head to a place referred to as an upper room. And this very likely could be the same room Jesus had the Passover meal he shared with these same individuals prior to his arrest and death. We don't know that for sure, but there's a good chance that that was the case. Now, what we notice here when we go through the names is that there's 11 disciples. So disciple basically means follower of Jesus, okay? So Jesus had selected 12 disciples, but Judas, Jesus' betrayer, was no longer. And we're going to talk about him in, in just a bit. So, but these individuals, along with some women that included Jesus' mother, as well as Jesus' brothers, were gathered together and were praying as they were waiting. Now, we mentioned in week one that when the call for these people to wait was given, there was no formula offered, right? You remember that, that we said the call is to wait, but there was nothing else given. There's no, this is how you wait or what you are to do while you're waiting, none of that. And this was important, as I mentioned in week one, because if this was provided, we as humanity would probably take that as a formula, for how we are to call God's Spirit to come. It basically comes like a magic formula, right? Like these are the things that we do, and then we can almost create this God-on-demand kind of thing. And then all of humanity will try and replicate this in some way, right? Like I need God to move or act in my life in this certain way, so these are the things that I need to do in order to get him to respond to me. But that's not what we're given, But it is noteworthy here that it wasn't wrong for the disciples to pray as they waited. In fact, this was time well spent. This demonstrates that they are submitted. They are currently submitting themselves to God. They're looking to God. They're trusting in him, calling upon his name. And this was an appropriate posture towards God as someone seeks to exercise faith in him. It's also notable that Luke mentions this is done with one accord. Okay? They're unified in this. So this isn't a bunch of individuals doing their own thing. This was a collective. This was a group of individuals who were united in this endeavor of waiting. And we're going to see this continually throughout the book of Acts. But this is a picture of Jesus' church. Unity is intended to be a mark of Jesus' church. Now we read here that this is a group of 120 people or so. And so this is similar to the size of Center Church. Now as they're gathered, Peter stands up and he begins to speak. And the bulk of his comments are directed towards the role that Judas had as one of the 12 disciples but also his betrayal of Jesus and subsequent death as well. And after making some comments about Judas, Peter is going to facilitate the selection of another individual who will replace Judas. But contained within Peter's comments are a number of 
maybe compelling or confusing aspects that I want to spend a little time looking at. So the first one of these is in verse 16. So we read in verse 16, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Okay, so this is talking here about David speaking. Now, if you know anything about David, David was like the most well-known king of Israel. And David lived hundreds and hundreds of years prior to Jesus or Judas coming on the scene. So we may wonder, David is pre-Jesus, so it would be before Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus left the Holy Spirit. So how is that? How does that all work out? So we know that at the beginning, when God created everything, God is three in one. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to unpack the Trinity, but that's, that's a theological term for God, the triune God, okay? But there, at creation, God was, okay? So the Holy Spirit was there in the beginning. Now, in a couple of instances in the Old Testament, it speaks of the Holy Spirit, And a common thought is the Holy Spirit in those instances did not come to indwell. Like we read in the New Testament, right? So we read in the New Testament, Jesus sends, leaves the Holy Spirit to come and indwell in his church, in his followers, to guide them, rebuke them, instruct them, encourage them, comfort them, to do many things for us as we follow Jesus. But that's not what's communicated in the Old Testament. What we find in the Old Testament is that God's Spirit comes on people for a specific task or for a specific reason, but not this ongoing, continual indwelling. Okay, now we're reading something really profound here in this verse. It says that David was speaking... But it also says it was actually God's Spirit that was speaking, right? So so David is speaking in his day, in his his time, a word that's meaningful. There's more going on than just that. So Peter cites two verses from the Old Testament as, as he's talking about this. He references Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. Now, the New Testament makes it really clear that the Old Testament is about Jesus. And actually, Luke himself is really helpful in this regard. So if we go back to the Gospel of Luke, we read in chapter 24, verse 44. We read there, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, so when it's talking about law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, this is just another way of saying what we know as the Old Testament today. Okay? So Jesus is essentially talking about the Old Testament when he says this phrase. So what he's saying is that what's read in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. 
in and through his life. Okay? And Luke then is recording that Peter is saying, despite the fact King David is writing Psalm 69 and 109 about his enemies, that David's words are ultimately fulfilled in the story of Judas' betrayal of Jesus. These scenarios find meaning in and through Jesus. So this can help us as we read the Bible. This can help us in our everyday lives as well. How we perceive and understand what's going on in the circumstances of our own lives. So those mundane parts of your day, the parts of life maybe that we'd like to ignore or avoid at certain times, those parts of life that at times maybe seem meaningless to us, why did that thing happen? It makes no sense whatsoever. This is why we want to connect everything back to Jesus. So as a church, we talk about being gospel-centered, or another way you could say this is being Jesus-centered. We want everything we do as a church to flow from Jesus and to end at Jesus as well. And the reason for this is because he's the center, note center church, he's the center of everything. We encounter really hard things in this life, things that we cannot make sense of in that moment, or maybe even in the whole of our lives. But what we find here is that Jesus gives meaning to everything. Jesus makes sense of the chaos. Maybe not in our lifetimes, but eventually he does. So, This should force us to wrestle with some questions like, do we believe God is still over all of this mess in this world? Because this world's really broken. And we face horrific things. And if you're not right now, you will at some point in your life. Life is really hard. Do we believe that God is over all of this? Do we believe that in the midst of those realities that he sees us? That he cares about us? That he still wants our good despite those circumstances? And then if we say yes to that, do our lives suggest belief in Jesus? Not not just you know, yeah, I believe that, but, but actually in the whole of our lives that we're demonstrating, no, we are casting ourselves, our lives on Jesus. We are actually putting our hope in Jesus, not, in ju- not just in good circumstances, but we are giving ourselves over to Jesus. Because the picture we are given of God here is one of complete understanding and control and power over everything. Peter says, God's Spirit was speaking these words hundreds of years before Judas and Jesus came on the scene. And he's saying those words had to find their fulfillment in Jesus. God was aware, moving, working, 
bringing good through evil. And this is a biblical theme that we see continuously throughout the Bible. God brings good through evil. So I want to highlight just two verses, two of the most well-known verses about this idea. So Genesis 50, 20. It says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Okay, so this is from the story of Joseph. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Joseph in the first book of the Bible, but Joseph was someone who, he was the youngest brother of many brothers, okay? And he said some kind of arrogant things. And his brothers didn't like him. And so they're like, I just want to get rid of this brother. And they all consorted together, and they decided to sell their brother into slavery, okay? And by God's hand, Joseph rises to this really high rank in a foreign country. And eventually a a famine comes upon the land, and his brothers come to the government of this foreign country where their brother is second in command in the whole country, right? And so they eventually come to their brother. And Joseph recognizes them and eventually reveals himself to them. And he tells them, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. This is mind-blowing, right? Like how easy would it be for him to want to harbor bitterness through all these years, to stick it to his brothers, maybe kill them. But he's able to look at this situation and say, what my brothers did, what you did, was evil. And yet, at the same time, God intended good through that. We also see this in Romans 8.28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Even the hard things in our life. So in these examples, for sure there's mystery, right? There's mystery in how this all works out. But the Bible makes clear there is a responsibility we have in all of this. As humanity, we have responsibility that makes us culpable and that does not make God evil, guilty of sin. And and there is mystery in this, but but that's the picture that we get in the Bible. There's this stark picture here. So God is fully aware of all that is transpiring, right? He is powerful. He is far more than anyone or anything in terms of his power. He is good. What is happening in and around our lives has much more meaning than we oftentimes realize. Much of the meaning in our lives might not be known to us. But if it is, and when it is, it's found connected to Jesus. That is where true meaning is found for us in our lives. So when we read in the Bible that things had to be Fulfilled, things spoken hundreds of years prior, seemingly 
completely different circumstances, but those things needed to be fulfilled hundreds of years later in and through Jesus. This is instructive for us in how we view our lives and the circumstances of our lives. So I say all of this as a way to offer encouragement and comfort in the midst of the harsh realities we are living with right now or we will live with eventually. God is aware. He is aware of what we're walking through. He remains good and will work good for us, even if it's not the good we would choose. And so the call then for us is to trust him. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sadness, that we would cling to Jesus because, because he possesses what we need. We can't go anywhere else to find what we need. Jesus possesses what we need. He is more powerful than everything. And so as a church then, coming back to this call to be unified, we are intended to share these things together, not to be disparate individuals who walk through our junk on our own, but to share this with one another, to cry on each other's shoulders, to pursue one another as we know others are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay, now I want to move to talk about Judas. But as we do this, I want to acknowledge how Judas' decision to betray Jesus did not derail God's plan. So this is really important for us to understand, right? Judas' decision to betray Jesus did not derail God's plan. What may have been shocking to the other disciples was not shocking to God. And just because in our own day someone thinks less of God does not make God less in any way. A decision by someone to disown Jesus does not delegitimize Jesus. Okay? And, And we can hear many stories of people in our day, people who are throwing off Jesus. That doesn't make Jesus less at all. Okay, so there's this grotesque description of Judas given regarding his death, right? And it's, yeah, it's, it's just simply grotesque. Now, I'm not going to mine into the grotesqueness of this. I want to talk about Judas here a little bit and a little bit behind Judas. So I think it's easy for us to villainize Judas because he clearly betrayed Jesus, right? So, But I think we need to be really careful how we think about Jesus, or Judas, I mean, because our tendency will be to compare ourselves to him, and in doing that, to justify ourselves, to be like, well, I haven't done that. At least I didn't sin in the same way Judas sinned, so I'm not that bad. But here's the reality. We are sinners just like Judas, every single one of us, okay? And here's the reality. You have betrayed Jesus. I have betrayed Jesus. So we have an even playing field here this morning, right? We're all in the camp of Judas. 
the call then for us is what do we trust in? Like, where do we turn in the midst of this? I don't know if you're familiar with this part of Judas's story, but after his act of betrayal, he comes back to those that he had consorted with, the religious leaders in Israel. And what he does is he returns the blood money that he had been paid to betray Jesus. And these religious leaders wouldn't even receive that money back. At least they wouldn't put it back into the treasury of the temple. What they did is they bought this field of blood with that money because they knew that that money was dirty. And then Judas, when he comes to the religious leaders, this is what he says. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That's a pretty vulnerable statement. That reveals some things about where Judas was at, right? He's acknowledging his sin in what he did to Jesus. At some level, there, we have to be able to acknowledge that there's a serious reckoning that Judas underwent. Now, I don't want to speculate on Judas, and that's not the point of my sermon, but what I want to focus on here is what's going on behind Judas' actions? What led him to that spot? And so I want to talk a little bit about Satan. Because we see the evidence of Satan's work in Judas' life. And Satan will seek to compel us to act in insane ways, to do what is not sensible, to do what we know is wrong, to make us think that wrong is right. That this is what Satan wants to do to all of us. And what Satan did with Judas is he convinced him to act in self-interest. And when that money was put before him, that money looked really good to Judas. And this was a similar story to what the brothers of Joseph concluded as they sold him into slavery, right? So we can see some themes here with this. And this is a struggle we're confronted with every day, whether it be money or anything else. There's tons of ways this can manifest in our own lives, right? Are we going to act in our self-interest or in the interest of Jesus? That's what we're all confronted with in our everyday lives, in, in small things. This isn't just like big things in life. This is many small decisions as well. So Jesus doesn't save people who seek to save themselves, who are just looking out for themselves, who are self-interested. Jesus saves, he provides for those who need him, for those who are spiritually destitute, those who are weak, are poor. And this is so upside down to everything we hear in our own culture, right? Advance, prosper, strengthen. Even in church, the context of church life, big is successful, right? Like you, if you go to a big church, like that, that proves that you're successful. I'd say maybe, but not in the way we typically think. Throughout the book of Acts, we will find people giving of themselves 
sacrificing for the flourishing of others, sacrificing for the flourishing of Jesus' church. And this is what Satan hates. He hates that people would live in this way, sacrificially loving one another. And the reason we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts is because this is what we see in the life of Jesus. He loved sacrificially. He did not seek his own self-interest. Although his regard for us, his interest in us, ultimately benefits him as well, displays his glory and his power and his goodness. Okay. Lastly, then, I want to comment briefly on the selection of the twelfth disciple that replaced Judas. So first, the reason for this was because the group determined they needed another witness to Jesus' resurrection. They needed another witness to Jesus' resurrection. So I just want to highlight the priority of this in the early days of the church. Jesus' resurrection, that is. Right? It's not as though that occurred and then they moved on from that. This is ground zero for the Christian faith. It was then and it is now for us today as well. We haven't or we should not have moved beyond Jesus' resurrection. This should be foundational for who we are as Jesus' church today. Our hope today can remain sturdy in view of undesirable or brutal circumstances because our hope is rooted in Jesus' resurrection. He overcame death, y'all, right? There's nothing like that. No one else we can say that about. Who can hold Jesus down? What can hold him down? Nothing. No one. Nothing can stop his love. Nothing can defeat Jesus. This is resurrection power that is true for us as much today as it was in the days following Jesus' resurrection. So there's an implied call for us in this. The Christian life is naturally about sharing the hope of Jesus and his resurrection. This is what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. But that's maybe not where we always find ourselves excited to share with others about the hope of Jesus' resurrection. So if you feel that, if you feel that this idea of sharing Jesus' resurrection is more have to than want to or get to, then we should have a conversation about the have to. We should talk about why the gospel is not good news, at least to that extent, for us. If, if we're not excited about Jesus, then we should talk about that. This is not a fake it till you make it kind of thing. That, that's not what we're about here at Center Church. This is not about white-knuckling it because we're supposed to. Jesus isn't calling people to follow him, to trust in him, just because he wants to give us obligations to do. He calls us to himself because he knows he is so much better than anything else, than anyone else. So, 
Seriously, if you find yourself in that spot of not being excited, of maybe feeling ashamed about talking about Jesus' resurrection with others, would you talk to myself? Would you talk to another overseer? Would you talk to your community group this week about it or next week about it? Would you talk to somebody about it? Because that's not Jesus' desire for you. He calls us to speak about him for our joy. He wants your joy. He wants our joy. And he wants us to be able to share in that together. Okay. Secondly, then, I just want to highlight the faith exercised in the selection of Matthias. I'm sure there was some examination that took place to ensure that these dudes were qualified, right, for this role. But then there doesn't seem to be a robust interview process, right? Like, we don't find them in the company boardroom listing out all of the strengths and weaknesses of these two individuals and splitting hairs about them. Essentially, what we find is that they go out, they take the dice, and they roll it. That's what they do, right? They're rolling dice to figure out who it's going to be. Now, I'm not encouraging us to just turn our brains off when we make decisions. These men were known. They'd been part of this crew since the beginning. And, and good leadership means that you're consistent. Good leadership means that you are known, okay? And, and clearly that was going on with these individuals. Now, one thing about the book of Acts is that there's a larger conversation about are there things in the book that are describing what happened or prescribing how we should do things? I would say this is more description than prescription, okay? We've got to be careful with this. A lot of times when there's prescription, there's repetition happening, okay? But I think this is more so describing what's going on. But I do want to just highlight the example of trust in God to work out his plan here is admirable, right? How often are we just paralyzed to make a decision, right? Because we're like, well, is it the right thing or not? And I just love the fact that they're just like, let's, let's throw the die, right? Let's just do this. Let's trust Jesus in this regard. All right, this brings us to our gospel application. Uh, It's not about what we do. It's about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. So two points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, a call to trust in the one who is sovereign, who's over everything. So we read in the first week that Jesus presented himself alive. Okay, he resurrected. He is powerful. He is enough. Now, it's one thing to just say those beliefs, to espouse beliefs with our mouths. It's another completely different thing to believe Jesus, to surrender control to him, to let him work in his time and in his way. And in a culture that conditions us to be in control of all of the circumstances in our life, this can be excruciating, especially when things don't go our way especially when things aren't happening at the pace we want them to happen, especially when we want to fix something. But the call in this is tether yourself to someone who's trustworthy. 
Tether yourself. Bind yourself. And that's Jesus. Tether yourself to Jesus. It's worth it. Secondly, then, to wait in faith. As mentioned, we're still finding these individuals waiting for God's promise. And I love the fact that we're now in our third week of this sermon series and we're still waiting. Because I think it helps to demonstrate a little bit for us the fact of what, what they went through in that time. It can help us feel a little bit of what they felt as they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. They didn't just snap their fingers and received what they wanted, right? So for us today, in those circumstances in our own lives, let's trust Jesus to do something that we cannot imagine. And as we wait, let's pray together that Jesus would move powerfully in us and through us. Jesus is a miracle worker. He can and does do these things far beyond what we can ask or imagine. And so we want to throw ourselves at Jesus' feet as we plead for cancer to be exterminated, right? We, we want to do that because Jesus is able to do that. We want to see him provide for us in ways that would blow our minds. But the call for us in this is to trust him not just to kind of from a distance say, ah, oh, Jesus can do it, but in our heart of hearts, we actually think he won't do it. Tether yourself to him. Believe. Wait in faith. Wait in faith. Let's believe that Jesus will fulfill his word. Let's not rush on ahead of him. Let's trust him to do what only he can do, even when it's hard, even when circumstances seem unlikely and impossible.